so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Don't you love it when I just thought you guys were just ignoring me, but really I was muted and I've just been like yelling at you this whole time. Gosh, that's, <laughs> that's so funny. I, oh, I kept I... saying, hey, could we try to be productive right now? Because there's a thing that we could do. And you were like, oh, we could get started the show. I was like, or you could listen to me. And I just, you didn't hear me. <laughs> we, <either. laughs> we couldn't hear anything you're saying. <laughs> oh, man. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. With me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindy Nicolay. Good, whatever time of the day you're choosing to listen to this, everybody. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. And also with us is the, uh, you know, just trusty sidekick, Brent Leatherwood. I, why does he always get these superlative, these great superlatives? I got it's nothing. It's just how I feel. It's just how I feel. Lindsay, you're amazing. And, you know, honestly, you're here every week. So I have to, like, butter Brent up just so he'll come to the podcast. Yeah, how can week. he be trusty if he's not here he's, every week? He's, he's, he's projecting on us. Uh, yeah, no, I'm kind of feeling like kind of low-energy Jeb today. Which, to be clear, low-energy Jeb is better than most people's highest energy. Like, I love me some low-energy Jeb. Yeah, please clap. So... You know, look, it's a, it's an exciting day uh, to podcast. Uh, I got the vaccine yesterday and I'm feeling a little tired. And so I'll just be honest, but we're going to pick it up right here. Also, later in the show, we're going to talk to a very special guest, our colleague, Elizabeth Graham, who leads all of the life initiatives that happen through the ERLC. And we are so excited for you to hear about the incredible work that she's been leading out on uh, through the ERLC. But Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. All right, so as I start my section, I want to give listeners a little behind-the-scenes peek, which is the fact that I have stopped and started this probably six times for some reason. Words are just not coming to me, which is ironic because the very first article that we're talking about today is by Alex Ward, one of our colleagues. It's a part of our interview series. And it's titled, Why Reading Classics Can Help Us Answer Age-Old Questions. And then I would put in parentheses and hopefully help us put sentences together in a coherent manner. And this is an interview with Karen Swallow Pryor, or as Josh calls her, the notorious KSP. She's a great person to follow on Twitter. And if you follow her on Twitter, you know that she's an English professor, and you know of her deep love for the classics. And instead of me trying to explain to you what this interview is about, I'm going to read a paragraph that Alex wrote in the intro, because I think it gives us a good understanding. In her new series of edited classics, Karen Swallow Pryor, professor of English and Christian and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, invites readers to return to or read for the first time works that continue to ask and answer questions of modern readers. We are not the first to ask questions about the relationship between science and religion, identity, and the juxtaposition of true faith and nominal Christianity. 
In returning to these great works of literature, Pryor hopes to give readers a chance to wrestle with those questions in new ways guided by their Christian faith, and I could not sum it up any better. Just to give you a heads up, this interview is about the first four in this series, which are Heart of Darkness, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Eyre, and Frankenstein. There will be two more released later, and specifically— Alex asks some questions about Frankenstein and Jane Eyre. On our website, we've had several articles about reading literature, reading works of fiction. I've talked about it, uh, how it's just delightful when you discover fiction and you you work on expanding your imagination, cultivating it like C.S. Lewis talked about. So I would encourage you, if you're thinking about dabbling in the classics or in fiction, uh, that you would read this, go to our site, read this article, and hopefully that will stir up something in you um, to go listen to these on audiobook, to grab one of the books, or to go to your library and check one out. The next article I want to highlight is by one of our channel editors, Jared Kennedy, who is just a leading voice when it comes to family and children's ministry. And this article is about a very hard topic of conversation that is extremely contentious, but also in a place of priority in our society, and it's titled, Conversations About Gender Should Begin with Humility, Helping Parents Navigate Hard Topics with Their Children. The topic of gender, the topic of sexuality, is probably a topic that many parents tend to shy away from, even though even though they know they should address it, because uh they shy away from it because it's hard and it's fraught with tension and awkwardness and anxiety. But Jared says, this is a question that we have to be answering and and looking at with our children and exploring because it's one that if we don't give biblical answers to, our children will get answers from the world. And those answers will lead down a path that looks like life, but as the Proverbs teach us, is one of death. And so Jared wrote a, an ebook for us titled, A Parent's Guide to Teaching Your Children About Gender. And this article is actually adapted from that. And just to give you an idea of what he deals with in this book, there's a link to the book in this article so that you can go to that. If you're a parent, um, make sure that you download this book. If you know parents or you know people who lead children and teenagers, Please send them a link to this book, but it's an incredibly important topic where Jared will explore topics like gender identity, gender fluid, transgender. It's a topic that we need to address with urgency and with clarity as Christians. And then finally, I wanted to highlight an article by a teacher in Chattanooga. Her name is Rachel Lonis, and the topic of this article is why it's important to value neurodiversity in the church, and then three ways you can help. Now, you may not be familiar with the term neurodiversity, uh, but what this is is a way of describing people whose brains and bodies process information differently than much of the population. So you've heard of diagnoses like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, or sensory processing disorder. And Rachel says that we've been trained to view these as purely deficit-based. But what I love about this is that she instead calls us to see, instead of seeing these as deficits and as problems to be fixed, Rachel calls us to see these as blessings and the way that these different brains and bodies process things as assets to the church and ways that we can 
in all of our diversity, reflect the multifaceted beauty of our creator and reflect the way that we are made in his image. And so she just gives us three quick things that we can do. Number one, don't pathologize. Do some research. Number two, support and accept them like Jesus would. And number three, advocate for neurodiversity in your church. So again, it's probably a topic not many of us are familiar with. I would encourage you to go to our site to check out this article, to become familiar with it, and to ask the Lord to open up your eyes uh, to the ways that you can apply this in your own church and to the ways that you can see people who fall into this category in your church and love them well and invite them into uh, ways of service that will display the beauty of our God. All right, Lindsay, thanks for sharing that rundown. And I want to just say on that, the first interview uh, that Alex did with Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, what's interesting, I've noticed around like social media over the last couple of weeks, people that have gotten those beautifully bound volumes uh, of the books, like they're taking pictures of them. And that's what I love about Karen is like, you could tell she she appreciates uh, like the finer uh, things in life. And so, but I, I appreciate the care that she took to the design of the covers of these books. And then for the article itself, I loved how Alex teased out uh, kind of the ethical implications that are relevant even today of the book Frankenstein. Um, because as we are dealing with so much in the world of technology right now, um, that, that book has some really interesting parallels uh, for our own moment. That's really good, Brent. And I'll just say uh, about both of the final two articles that Lindsay mentioned, uh, the first one by Jared, that he's helping people answer questions that their kids really have and questions that parents really have and children's ministers really have about how to help kids think about these complex topics. Because what kids don't need is someone, when they ask one of these hard questions, to just go, God made you male or female, just understand it. Just get over, just, just, you know, just accept it and move on. Like Jared really takes the time to pastorally walk people through this. And, and that kind of stuff is really, really useful. And in the same way, uh, this article about neurodiversity is really about helping us see all the people that are inside of the church and making space for everyone instead of just assuming that, well, if you don't kind of fit into this normal paradigm, if you're not, if you're not married or if you're not, you know, you're not this or whatever, uh, that, that you don't matter as much or you're not seen or you're not valued. And so uh, this is one of the ways that the ERLC is able to to help sharpen the church and challenge the church to to minister well uh, to all of those in our midst, whether they be children or otherwise. And to add one more point uh, to what you said about Jared's article and having these conversations with our children, just to give a tease to our listeners for uh, the interview that's going to happen later in the episode with our uh, colleague, Elizabeth Graham, the world and organizations in the world are trying to have these conversations with our children and with our teenagers. And Planned Parenthood is an example of that. They've developed a chat bot where kids can ask these kinds of questions about gender, gender identity, transgender questions. Questions like you said, Josh, that that kids and teenagers and adults, uh, they have. And we have to be ready to provide helpful um, clear answers to them so they they know um, what the Bible teaches and what God says and and the way the path that leads to life instead of turning to a chat bot like one that Planned Parenthood is providing. So for the listener, all of these articles are at our site. Uh, we have a host of other articles as well. 
as I always say, a host of free resources for you that answer many of your pressing questions. But for now, Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks so much for that, Lindsay. And Brent, that takes us to the culture section. So tell us what's going on in the world, man. All right, we are leading off today with the declining birth rate in America. So Axios has this story. The fertility rate in the U.S. dropped by 4% last year compared to 2019, the lowest it's been in nearly 50 years, according to provisional data from the National Center for Health Statistics. The data corroborates previous surveys that predicted a, quote, COVID baby bust with women reporting that they were postponing pregnancy and having fewer children, as well as surveys indicating less sexual activity overall. There were 55.8 births per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44 last year, and it is the sixth straight year the number of births in the U.S. have fallen, CDC data shows. So, Lindsay and Josh, I'm you know, it seems like a couple of our colleagues and, and friends out there have, have been talking about this news uh, since it, it broke on Wednesday morning. Uh, how, how do y'all think Christians should think about this? And is there a, a response from the church? First of all, I think it's important to note and to be sensitive to the fact that not every woman who wants to have children can have children. And so there are women or families who maybe fall into these statistics of declining birth rates who struggle to get pregnant, especially with Mother's Day coming up, it's just important that we recognize these women and these families um, who long, whose hearts just long for children. Um, second of all, though, on a on a funnier note, I want to say that, uh, you know, I've only been exposed not to the COVID baby bus, but to a COVID baby boom. I'm aware of a lot of people who are having babies during COVID, including myself. And I feel like Josh and Brent and I, with our spouses, are contributing to the um, to the America's birth rate. So uh, we're contributing to, we're trying to do our part to contribute to this important birth rate, as well as our audio engineer, uh, Mark, who has a baby due here soon. Uh, and thirdly, it's just important for the church uh, to continue to teach what the Bible says, and that is that children are a blessing and that God has created us as we're able to. Um, to get married, a man to a woman, and to bear fruit, and to have children who, once again, I've said, are they truly are blessings, even though it's a sacrificial time of your life to raise small kids. Um, it is one that is blessed by the Lord. Yeah, Lindsay, you said it. Like, I think for Christians, this is actually a bombshell. Like, this news is major, major news. And I know, like, who, who gets excited or energized about the birth rate, but the fact that uh, we're not even meeting the replacement rate right now is actually major news. And there's all kinds of uh, questions there. I mean, you talked about maybe there's going to be a COVID baby boom. That's very possible. But one of the things I'm thinking about uh, overall is how much of this is being driven by our culture's changing social norms and, and the idea that having children is a drain on your life, that it's a drain on your family's finances and your opportunities to travel or accumulate wealth or to do the things in life that you want to do, that's that's deeply concerning to us as Christians because, like you said, children are a blessing. That they, they're gifts from the Lord and that we are supposed to prize uh, the gift of bearing children, of raising children. Uh, and so that's obviously not to be insensitive to anybody who struggles with infertility or has other reasons why they, they may not be able to have children or are pursuing marriage or whatever. But the 
the fact is that for Christians, this is normative. This is something that God calls us to in terms of in terms of uh, childbearing and child rearing and to raising kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord and that these these children are a blessing. And so for the church, no matter what's happening in the culture, this may, as you said, uh, or as you kind of pointed to, Brent, this may be an opportunity for the church to emerge once again as that kind of countercultural force. All right, moving on to the COVID-19 front, which as an aside, I am just looking forward to the day where we actually don't have a coronavirus uh, section with so much breaking news. But CBS News is reporting this. President Biden set a new target of having 160 million U.S. adults fully vaccinated and 70 percent of adults at least partially vaccinated by July 4th, ramping up efforts to reach rural areas and communities where the rate of COVID-19 vaccinations has lagged. Mr. Biden said the administration is going to, quote, make it easier than ever to get a shot as the U.S. enters a new phase of the vaccination campaign. So within this story, it outlines a number of steps that the federal government will take. Among them are directing pharmacies to offer walk-in vaccines, deploying mobile vaccination clinics, increasing funding for community outreach encouraging young people to get vaccinated if and when a shot is approved for use in adolescence, and they unveiled a brand new website, vaccines.gov, where you can go uh, to find open vaccine appointment slots uh, in your area to make it that much easier uh, to, to find it. And so, uh, Josh, thankfully, you don't, you don't have to use this uh, because you got your second shot. Uh, I, think, I think all of us here on the pod now are, are fully vaccinated, which is a is a certainly a great blessing. And so we want to encourage other folks to get out there and, and do the same. All right, this is important because according to a new report, children are now contracting COVID at higher levels. NPR is reporting this. The number of children con- contracting COVID-19 in the U.S. is much lower than the record highs set at the start of the new year. But children now account for more than a fifth of new coronavirus cases in states that release data by age, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Experts link the trend to several factors, particularly high vaccination rates among older Americans uh, are at the top of that. The U.S. recently announced 100 million people were fully vaccinated against COVID-19, but there are other dynamics also in play from new COVID-19 variants to the loosening of restrictions on school activities. Uh, There's a really helpful interview uh, in this NPR article that we will link to uh, that I think uh, folks should just kind of watch. It's an expert that's talking through, uh, you know, pediatrics and COVID-19. And I just thought it was really helpful to, to point that out as well. I'm glad you're pointing that out, Brent, because my children are th- the last concern that I have uh, now that I've gotten my husband and myself vaccinated. But I just wanted to point out quickly that I noticed in the news recently that the Pfizer vaccine may soon be available for children 12 to 15, which is quicker than I thought. And actually, as I was looking this up, um, the news said that Canada has approved this vaccine for children ages 12 to 15. So it looks like we're uh, well on our way to getting our children taken care of. Uh, The next story also comes from NPR, and it's an update on masks and air travel. So wearing a face mask will continue to be a requirement at airports, aboard commercial flights, and on other public transportation across the country through the summer. The federal mask mandate, which was set to expire on May 11th, will remain in effect through September 13th, according to updated guidance issued by the Transportation Security Administration on Friday. What's interesting, my wife and I, we were actually talking about this now that that we both are fully vaccinated. 
um, you know, are are there going to be certain places that, uh, you know, if if it's more of a, uh, you know, take your own personal approach to wearing masks or whatnot, are, is there like one place over the other that we're definitely going to continue wearing? And we both immediately said airports and planes, uh, which I just thought was interesting. Like, it's kind of like intuitive for us. Like, yes, that is the place. And I think it's just because, you know, back in the before times, we would often kind of come off of planes just feeling a little icky for the next couple of days. What do, you, what do y'all think? Well, I was just going to point out very quickly, Brent, that my mom just traveled to Florida. She's vaccinated. And she said she would not be traveling on planes without being vaccinated. And of course, she wore a mask because it's required. But it is shoulder to shoulder. She said she, at the airport, she was sitting on the floor because there was not somewhere to sit. She said, there is just no way you are going to be avoiding breathing the same air as other people. So I think you and Meredith might be smart to continue wearing masks on the plane just for a little extra safety measure. Yeah, you guys are really uh, psyching me up about the next time I'm supposed to get on a plane, which is actually supposed to be next week uh, to try to fly back to North Carolina to graduate. So we'll, we will see if those plans continue. Just mask it up, Josh. You'll be okay. Back in the States, Facebook is in the news. NBC News is reporting that Facebook was justified in banning then-President Donald Trump from its platform the day after the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, but it needs to reassess how long the ban will remain in effect, the social network's quasi-independent oversight board said on Wednesday. The decision to uphold the ban is a blow to Trump's hopes to post again to Facebook or Instagram anytime soon but it opens the door to him eventually returning to the platforms. Facebook must complete a review of the length of the suspension within six months, the board said. Yeah, Brent, we were watching this decision very closely. We knew the oversight board was about to rule on this. And the ERLC, and particularly our colleague Jason Thacker that we talk about all the time in terms of technology, he has uh, been doing a considerable amount of work in helping to, uh, on the the side of technology ethics and considering things like this, when we're talking about uh, free speech issues and, you know, banning or restricting access to certain platforms. And so I won't get into all of the work that he's been doing there, but it is, it is significant and has, has been very influential. And in fact, uh, there's a major new project that he is about to roll out in the coming weeks related to what he calls the digital public square. And so we are really excited to be able to share more about that with you. But this is obviously, somebody said to uh, Jason and I the other day in a conversation that uh, for the first time, the public square is now in private hands. And that's exactly right. And we're thinking about the online world in terms of a public square. And so this is incredibly important and something we're going to continue to watch and work on. All right, this next story is a great story from the world of sports. So it comes to us from Bleacher Report. Amy Bockerstedt, a 22-year-old golfer for Paradise Valley Community College, will become the first collegiate athlete with Down syndrome to compete for a national title when she participates in the NJCAA National Championships. Bockerstedt was also the first student-athlete with Down syndrome to receive an athletic scholarship. So I'm highlighting this, A, not only is it just a great story of uh, athletic achievement, uh, but there is a awesome video uh, in this story that is linked uh, from back in 2019. She became an instant sensation in 2019 when she paired with Gary Woodland on the 16th hole at TPC Scottsdale in Arizona ahead of the Phoenix Open. And she hit a ball out of the sand trap and then putted it in uh, from eight feet away. And it's just, it's phenomenal. I, I wish I had a golf game anywhere near like that. 
Um, and uh, but it's just it's a great story, and uh, we're going to be rooting for it because the championships are actually this week. I just love love that story, and you have to watch that video if you haven't seen it. All right, so finally we will end where we began with births. Okay, all right, you with me, Lindsay? You hanging with me here? All right, BBC is reporting this: a twenty-five year old uh, Malian woman has given birth to count them. Nine children, two more than doctors had detected during earlier scans. Uh, I believe I'm pronouncing this right. Halima Cease gave birth to non-nuplets in Morocco. Mali's government flew her there for specialist care. Quote, I'm very, I'm happy, very, very happy, her husband told the BBC. My wife and the babies, five girls and four boys, are doing very well. It is extremely w- rare to give birth to a set of non-uplets, and complications often mean that the babies do not survive. So I was particularly touched uh, by this section uh, about the husband. Her husband, adjutant Cater Arby, is still in Mali with the couple's older daughter, but he says he has been in constant touch with his wife in Morocco and says he is not worried about the family's future. This is his quote, God gave us these children He is the one to decide what will happen to them. I'm not worried about that. When the Almighty does something, he knows why, he told the BBC. Uh, What an incredible story. Man, Brent, you did it. How heartwarming is that story? That just, that is beautiful. And it just makes you celebrate the wonderful gifts of God. It is just amazing. And can you imagine, Lindsay, can you imagine carrying nine children? Um, That is an emphatic no, nor can I imagine caring for nine babies at one time. Uh, This family, to go back to where we were at the beginning, is doing more than their part to contribute to the birth rate. They are doing their part for sure, yes. The global (laughs) birth rate. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend and colleague, Elizabeth Graham. Elizabeth serves as Vice President of Operations and Life Initiatives for the ERLC. She has been leading out on just incredible work in the pro-life space, and we are really excited to take a few minutes and talk to her today. Elizabeth, as we're getting started, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and your family maybe and how you serve at the ERLC? Yeah. um, Okay. So thanks, Josh. Thank you all so much for having me just uh, on the podcast today. So I began consulting for the ERLC in December of 2013 on events. And I did that for about a year. So from December of 13 to December of 14. And in that time, I was offered a full-time role. So I moved to full-time in January uh, of 2015 to become the director of events. So I went from consulting to director of events in January of 2015. And then in the spring of this past year, Dr. Moore um, asked me if I would uh, become vice president of our life initiatives and operations and was approved by the trustees in September of uh, 2020 at our meeting. And, you know, just to tell you a little bit about how I got involved in life work, my passion for pro-life advocacy and a holistic view of life really comes from a series of personal experiences and understanding God's word deeply through uh, a period of time in my life. I've considered myself pro-life for a long time, as long as I can remember, but watching my family and friends choose life and shaping my theological perspective while I was in seminary at Southeastern 
uh, resonated with me and shaped really my perspective and my desire to advocate for life. And just to bring it into a much more personal level, when I was in high school, a really close friend of mine confided in me that she was pregnant. Um, And to help navigate through that weightedness of the difficult decision, when she confided in me, I told my mom, my mom took me to our local pregnancy center in Knoxville, where I was given a pamphlet that discussed the real reason that we choose life for preborn babies. Um, because they're made in the image of God and they deserve uh, dignity and worth. They are valuable because they're made in God's image. So my friend was only 16 years old at the time, but her choosing life for her baby had a profound impact on my life. And what's interesting is when I gave her the packet of information, they also gave me this little tiny preborn baby that would have been the size of her baby at that time. And it brought to realization that there was a life growing inside of her and helped her to choose life. So fast forward a few years from there and a close family member who was on a sports scholarship in college discovered that she was pregnant. And her doctor at the time encouraged her that aborting her baby was her best option. But she grew up in the church and she knew that this really wasn't something that she was ever willing to consider. So through a series of events, she ended up choosing to have her baby and chose life. And that had another really profound impact on my life. I really wish I had time to tell you in detail just so many other stories that impacted me. But those are all things that the Lord used over a period of years to shape my pro-life ethic and passion to move me to really stand for life. Well, Elizabeth, we're so glad to have you at the helm of the pro-life efforts um, of the ERLC. And it's neat to see and to hear how God has just specifically prepared you for this and used those things in your past Uh, to bring you to where you are today. Can you explain to us a little bit about what leading in the pro-life space consists of? So there's a lot of different ways I could talk about this, but we have begun working on this. We we sort of called it an an initiative for a while, but um, we have been working over the last year on our national strategy to partner with individuals, churches, and like-minded organizations and groups to equip and unite the church to work towards ending abortion and uphold the dignity of life. And so that national strategy we've called Stand for Life. So what we hope to do with Stand for Life is we hope that it will strengthen pro-life convictions and enhance pro-life engagement. It's an effort that's explicitly designed to equip and engage the church to be a powerful witness for the sanctity of every human life, both born and pre-born. Our hope is to provide an area where Christians and churches can come and join together, work toward a future in which life will be cherished and abortion will simply be unthinkable. That's really what our hope is um, in terms of our work here at the ERLC, where we see the Lord taking us as we stand for life. And we do this work through our national strategy 
Uh, all right, so EG, one of the things that we are most excited about is the ultrasound placements that we are able to do through the Psalm 139 project. Why is this such an important initiative for you and, and for the RLC? So Psalm 139 project is absolutely incredible. I am so proud of the work that uh, Psalm 139 does. It focuses on lives in the womb. So Psalm th- uh, 139 was first established. The first placement was done in 2004. And the goal of the initiative is to make people aware of the life-saving potential of ultrasound machine technology in crisis pregnancy situations and to help pregnancy centers minister to abortion-vulnerable and abortion-determined women by providing ultrasound equipment for those centers to use. So the project provides a way for individuals to assist financially in the placement of ultrasound machines in qualified pregnancy care centers. If we just want to boil it down, it's all about standing for life by working to save the lives of preborn children. Our audience at the ERLC is regularly asking what they can do to stand for life. And what the Psalm 139 project allows us to place this life-saving ultrasound machine technology in pregnancy health clinics at absolutely no cost to the clinic. We're also able to provide training to that center and to their staff for little to no cost to the center. So as we began dreaming about expanding this initiative and what the Lord would have us do as an organization, we decided we wanted to radically increase our number of placements because we know that many women and lots of pro-life organizations and also pregnancy resource clinics say that 80% of women who see their preborn child on an ultrasound will choose life. So the need is great, and our hope is that we'll leave a legacy of life and see preborn babies saved. And due to the gifts of generous donors and partnerships, we've placed six machines so far in 2021 with at least 10 more placements in progress currently. And we continue to connect with additional centers as funding comes available. It's an incredible and a helpful ministry, and it it really makes me thankful that we live in a technological age for such a time as this so that we can Mm -hmm. give a window into the womb uh, so that people can see the personhood of that child. So thank you for helping to lead that effort. One of your other major focuses is seeing pro-life organizations like ours confront the work of Planned Parenthood head on. If you could sum it up for us briefly, what do you think that we need to know today about Planned Parenthood's influence in our culture? I'm so glad that you asked this question, uh, Lindsay. Planned Parenthood has had over 100 years to influence our culture, which has led to them holding a monopoly of the mind. They have defined the standard of care for women's reproductive health, and this started when they opened their first birth control clinic in 1916. They're the largest provider of abortion, yet have convinced the world that they care and are providing women's reproductive health care. So they capture women's attention as early as kindergarten, and I would argue they capture children in general, not just women, as early as kindergarten through their sex education and gender curriculum in the school system. And then they continue to meet them at every stage of their journey, in particular, young girls and who become young women as they go on. We call this like the funnel, um, the life cycle. 
So sex education in the school, they hold the monopoly on providing the curriculum for gender and sex education. This really allows them to control the narrative on what's taught within the school system. In 2019 to 2020, 1.1 million people reached through affiliate sex education programs. So they had 1.1 million people reached through this affiliate and sex education program. They then really expanded access through technology. So they've answered the questions for teenagers through a um, artificial technology application called Roo. And Roo is Planned Parenthood's free and completely confidential sex ed chatbot that targets teens as young as 12 years old. That's really concerning to me as a mother of an 11-year-old, that if my 11-year-old knows that they could type in their birthday to meet a 12-year-old birthday, they can access Planned Parenthood's free confidential sex education chatbot. Planned Parenthood also, they provide information and telehealth services that are bookable 24-7. So they have really expanded. You know, they've got you, they capture at this young age through education. They've then also moved you through their funnel through um, Rue, their sex chat bot for teens. So that's the, that's the early years and then the mid years. And then they move you from there to their healthcare. Um, so they provide services that are reimbursable through Medicaid, STI, and STD testing. About 50% of their visits are for reimbursable STI and STD testing, along with contraception, which accounts for 26% of their visits. And they've even influenced the way that we think within the church. 62% of their patients are religiously affiliated. So Planned Parenthood has really engaged individuals at what we call the upper end of the funnel as a child, teenage years, young adult, and to later adult. And their abortion services are a part of what they consider healthcare services at that 25-year-old range, which is where they say most of those are captured as well. So they are engaging individuals at the at the entire life cycle. I think that's really important for Christians and the church to know and understand the ways in which they've captured the monopoly of the mind. And they've re-engineered our culture to have a flawed view of the human person. Yeah. And Elizabeth, you covered a lot of ground there. And a lot of it, I think, is going to be sobering for a number of our listeners in the ways that Planned Parenthood uh, targets vulnerable women and families. So uh, let's kind of flip Mm -hmm. the script a little bit. What are other things out there that are encouraging you uh, in the pro-life movement right now? So I'm encouraged on a lot of fronts. I know that the information about Planned Parenthood is probably shocking to some, and it was for me as I've continued to do a lot of research in this area. But what I'm really encouraged about, and one of the main things is the the work that we're calling the Road to Row 50. So we we have been working on a lot of different initiatives um, with our partners in the life space and just within our own organization over the next couple of years leading up to the 50th anniversary of the infamous Roe v. Wade decision. So Stand for Life has, um, is the ERLC's response to this moment, which is designed to bear witness to the injustice of abortion 
and then channel the influence of Christians and churches. So through the work of Stand for Life at the ERLC, we'll provide resources and curriculum to the church, and we want to, and desire to partner with like-minded groups and organizations across, across the pro-life community, and we want to work to accelerate effective strategies and develop major pro-life events. One such event that we are working on will be Row 50, and Row 50 is a national event that we are working on combined with multiple pro-life organizations that we're going to hold in Washington, D.C. in January of 2023 around the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. In this event, Row 50, the gathering, we hope, will call together leading voices from across the pro-life spectrum and will host a once-in-a-lifetime experience and we really just want to lament the loss of lives of preborn children through abortion. But we want to provide a vision for what a post-Roe America would look like and really work to inspire a new generation of men and women to stand for life. So I'm really encouraged and excited to see members of the pro-life movement working together instead of working against one another to accelerate effective strategies over both short, mid, and long-term goals to engage collaboratively and collectively on this work and this set of issues before us. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for all of that rich information. This pro-life space, the pro-life movement, is one that we need churches engaged in, that we need every Christian involved in, so that we can um, reach these goals that you're talking about, to see abortion become unthinkable, um, to see these men and women and families who are faced with unplanned pregnancies or difficult situations have a place to run to, um, so that they will choose life for their children, and that would be the church. Thank you again for all the work that you're doing in this space. We're so glad to have you at the ERLC to get to call you um, our colleague, but also our friend. And so we, we pray that the Lord would just continue to bless your efforts as you lead out on this. That's right. We're really, really thankful that you're magnifying this issue for us, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. I appreciate y'all having me on today. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. Well, I have a little humor for your day uh, off of Twitter. So Kate Bowler, who ha is a prolific author, she's a New York Times bestselling author, uh, she asked a question on Twitter, what's the worst thing you've ever witnessed at a wedding? And then she goes on to to say a few things. And so then there was this whole thread that you'll have to go and read. One of the highlights was uh, this guy who went to a wedding. This is, of course, the short version. And as they came up, uh, the guests came up, they were given a white envelope to and instructed to hold on to it later for a surprise. So all the the attendees either, you know, probably put it in your in their pants pocket or in the purse or something like that. So then at the very end of the wedding, the officiant said, so... You were given this uh, white envelope that uh, was going to have a surprise at the end. Well, it contains live butterflies, and everybody's supposed to open it and uh, release the butterflies, and they're going to fly away as the, the couple walks down the aisle into almost everyone's horror. They had squished their butterflies and killed them. So it was just a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> and this is not funny, but it, it was funny how he closed it, and he said, he said, you know, and in case anyone was wondering how this marriage did, 
it basically played out the same way as the butterflies, which is not, it's not funny and not to be celebrated, but it's just terrible. Don't, don't put butterfly, surprise butterflies in an envelope and ask people to, to release them at the end of the ceremony because they probably won't survive. Yeah, I've heard so many stories about like bad wedding uh, plans like that just going terribly wrong. And um, man, squishing butterflies has to be up there on the list. At my own wedding, we did the whole like you leave with birdseed or whatever, but I had some particularly overzealous younger nephews who decided that birdseed wasn't be this kind of cute thing to kind of throw up in the air, but just to pelt uh, my new wife and I with it as hard as they could on the way to the car. And man, for weeks and weeks, there was birdseed everywhere. It was a real nightmare. The bad wedding stories reminds me uh, of the bad baby reveals. <laughs> I don't people think I've like, seen those. G- the bad gender like, reveals. Yeah, people, yeah, not, yeah, gender reveals, not baby. I mean, <laughs> hopefully by the time you're doing the gender, you know you've got the baby. No, the, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, like, oh, one guy's like, oh, I'm going to hit with a baseball bat this balloon that's full of powder and he misses it and like and asks the wife to on the throw it and it just explodes. <laughs> I mean, it just things like that. Yeah. Well, there was one in the news recently where the couple might get charged because they used pounds of explosives and set off this giant explosion that scared people. (laughs) Just just cut a cake that's got, you know, blue icing or pink icing and let's just call it a day. Well, I'll take this as a perfect segue to mine, which is to say, so we had two friends release books this week. We've talked about that, talked about it a lot. Uh, but Andrew Walker's book, uh, Liberty for All, came out. And Dean and Sarah's book, uh, Getting Over Yourself, uh, Trading Belief in Yourself Religion for Christ-Centered Christianity, came out. And if you don't know Dean, I mean, Dean's been on the podcast before. He's a pastor down in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, and this book is just raw like Dean is. I mean, he cuts it straight. And so I saw people like uh, posting excerpts uh, today or just pages of quotes or whatever. And man, if you're a Christian looking for like a fun read that will also like be to your spiritual benefit, like I think you should go check that out. The other thing that I would mention is just, look, as we're coming out of this uh, long, horrible season of COVID, I finally started venturing back to the movie theater. And most recently, I went to see a movie that I thought was new, but it turned out was like a year old. Uh, but it has Benedict Cumberbatch in it, and it's called The Courier. It's about a Cold War. Uh, it's a, a British businessman who ends up unwittingly in the middle of this kind of Cold War catastrophe where he's like acting as, you know, a courier or, you know, for, for spy agencies between the United States and England uh, against the USSR. And so... It was fantastic. It's rated PG-13, so use your own discretion, but movie was fantastic. And if you're a movie guy, that's one that you might want to check out. What about if you're a movie girl? If you're a movie girl, that's one you want to check out too. Great. Josh, as you were mentioning that movie, I had a flashback to Kevin Costner's movie, The Postman. Like post-apocalyptic mail (laughs) that was like panned because it was so terrible. So I'm glad that Benedict Cumberbatch uh, gave you a, a better better movie experience. Uh, Much Kevin better Cossie movie experience. So uh, my, the thing I bring in the lunchroom, so, you know, as listeners know, uh, we're a baseball family uh, here in the Leatherwood household. Two, two of my three kids play ball, and um, we are just in the throes of that exciting season in, uh, in, in their lives. And um, uh, there was a Twitter account that uh, Michael Sarami is his name, and he tweeted out a video from this like most recent Cubs game this week where there's a tradition at Wrigley Field where the Cubs play in Chicago. Uh, if the opposing team hits a home run into the bleachers, you, you throw the home run back onto the, the field of play. 
And uh, this is a great video of this dad. Uh, they catch the ball, and he's got his young son with him, and he lifts him up, runs down the, the steps in the aisle uh, to the edge of the outfield fence, and has the son uh, throw the ball back onto Wrigley Field. And it's just a great little tradition that they have there. And it was great to see a dad have uh, this moment with, with his young son. Well, and with a little boy doing that, uh, you can't be mad. It just looked cute, you know? If it was an adult that just did it on his own, I could see that the opposing team would be mad, but you just could not get mad at this little kid. It was just way too cute. Yeah, well, and you know, if you're if you're a baseball person and you enjoy going to games, like you're always hoping that you're going to catch a foul ball or a home run. And uh, to actually have the ball come to you so that you can catch it and then being willing to throw it back on, chuck it back onto the field, uh, man, like that is, that's dedication. I mean, that is the kind of a fandom that is just, it's serious business. Well, that's uh, that's one reason I would never be a Cubs fan because I do want to keep <laughs> home run ball if I catch it with my son. But but hey, kudos to this dad for keeping the, the Cubby spirit alive up there. Uh, friend of the pod, Dan Darling, would be uh, really proud. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, we just want to say thanks so much for listening, as always. And if you like the show, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for hanging out with us each and every week. And we look forward to being back with you next week with more content. Mm-hmm.